Today's Bible reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, and can be found in the church Bibles on pages, page 1866, 1866. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his promise very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. But God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, now, last week we looked at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verse 11 to 6, verse 12. And our line to remember for that week was this. Uh, it was, since we are children of God, let's grow as our Father's children, paying attention to his warnings and listening to his promises in Christ. Uh, the author wanted his, his readers to move on from the elementary teachings of Christ. That was chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, in other words... He wanted them to, to keep building on the foundations of the gospel, of, of repentance and faith, and to keep persevering in their faithfulness to God and their pursuit of Jesus, because they'd been backsliding in their pursuit of Jesus and in their, their trust in him. They had stalled in seeking to listen to the word of God. And the author uh, told them that they were like grown adults who were still drinking milk from a baby's bottle. He was still stuck on their ABCs when they should have been growing in their maturity as God's children and actually teaching others how to do so as well. There was a fair bit contributing to this struggle of the early Christians back then. I mean, you might remember, we've talked about it a few times, that they were persecuted, they were excluded socially, they were mocked for being Christians. They, they suffered because of their faith in Jesus. It was really hard for them. But the author of Hebrews, he wants them to persevere. And he, he, he helps them, uh, and us as well, to persevere by pointing our attention to Jesus, always. By helping us fix our eyes on him and reminding us why Jesus is better than anything this world can offer in the past or in the present or in the future. I grew up in a house in Klemzig, and it was this big old double brick house, uh, and one of my, my kind of standing memories of, of that house, I and mean, it's all the really great memories that I have, are the cracks that were in the walls. They're actually part of the reason we ended up moving out. I was in that house until I was 18, but my parents were in it for a lot longer. Uh, a few years into owning that house, some, some cracks kind of started to appear in the walls, just, just in the paint, really faint cracks. Uh, but years later, those cracks became a bit more prominent. They were more obvious, and mum and dad decided that something needed to be done about those cracks, so they plastered over them, and you couldn't see them anymore. Right, problem solved. 
But then years later, what, what happens? The cracks came back. They were really persistent and they kept getting worse. And it got to a point where in my brother's bedroom, uh, you could actually see outside through one of the cracks in the wall. Um, so plaster wasn't quite going to cut it. We, we thought we have to go like pretty hardcore. Um, so we just stuffed some plastic bags into the cracks to stop the cold from blowing in, uh, to stop people from being able to peek inside. Uh, the cracks just kept coming back. They kept getting worse. And eventually mum and dad found out that the, uh, the foundations under the house weren't actually great. They were, they were not that secure. They kept moving. And they needed to make a decision. Right? Did we stay in that house and just hope for the best? Keep spending lots and lots of money trying to fix an issue with the foundations that may or may not work? Or do we find a new home? Do we find a better home? Uh, Hebrews six thirteen to 20, it helps us look at the foundation that our lives are built on if we follow Jesus. And it's a great passage this morning because it's a passage that reminds us that there is no foundation more firm to build on. And it reminds us of the home that we belong in, a home that is certain. It's a passage about the promises of God and and the real security that we have because of it. Not, Not fake security that the world provides, but real and eternal security. And the line to remember this morning is this. God's promises are a firm foundation that will not be moved, so be patient. God's promises are a firm foundation that will not be moved, so be patient. If you have an outline in front of you, you'll see that point one says uh, a promise and an oath. In Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 last week, uh, we read this. Uh, The author of Hebrews said to his readers, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Uh, The author urges his readers, including us, to persevere in following Jesus by imitating those who have gone before us, who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. But verses 13 to 15 then this morning is an example of one such person, someone who God made promises to, and who received what was promised. And this person was Abraham. Now, for the readers of this this letter, who were Jewish in heritage, they would have heard a name like Abraham, and their ears would have have picked up, because he's one of the greats. He's, He's the one they're all descended from. Everyone with a Jewish heritage is descended from Abraham. And they would have known the story of Abraham, how God promised uh, two people who didn't have any children, being Abraham and, and his wife Sarah, a son. They would have known how God promised that from this son, many other descendants would come, and how the whole earth would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. See, they knew these promises that God made to Abraham, and they're massive, right? The whole world, all nations being blessed through a descendant of Abraham and Sarah. It's a great promise. But they would have known something else. So they would have also known how old Abraham and Sarah were when this happened, when this was promised. Just off the top of your head, does anyone know how old Abraham was when God promised him that he would have a son? He was 75. 75 years old. Sarah was 65. And you can kind of imagine them, them kind of receiving these promises and hearing it. And they would have been like, this is, actually, this is amazing, this is awesome. But if this is going to happen, like, God, you kind of got to do this thing now. 
But you're saying, I'm going to give you a son. If both of us are going to make his graduation from primary school, right, this kind of has to happen now. Sarah's just retired from work. Abraham's been scoping out a great retirement home next to a golf course where he can perfect his swing. But really, like, what's going on here? 75 years old, 65 years old, with no children, but a promised descendants that will be as numerous as the stars. Does anyone know how old Abraham and Sarah were when the promise of a son came true? 100 years old. That's how old Abraham was. Sarah was 90. We read that in Genesis chapter 21 from verse 5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? It's 25 years waiting for this promise. I struggle to wait for a red light to turn green. This is, it's a long wait. Waiting 25 years when all the odds are stacked up against you, waiting for those promises to come true. I mean, how do you, how do you get there? And how do you know those promises are actually going to come true? Well, we read that it's all to do with the one making those promises. So we read about a promise and an oath. Read this in verse 13 to 15. It should be on the screen behind me. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So what's going on here? Well, we're seeing that God's promising that he's going to do something. And we see him swear an oath that it's going to happen. I just imagine you're watching an episode of Suits or something and you're watching like a a courtroom scene. You're in a courtroom and the person giving their testimony places their hands on a Bible and they say, I swear that the evidence I'm giving shall be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. What are they saying? Essentially they're saying, God, as my witness and my judge, I am going to tell the truth. In the ancient Near East, thousands and thousands of years ago, making oaths was a really big deal. We read in Hebrews 6 verse 16, should be on the screen, people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. So for example, if there was a dispute and you came to an agreement that this dispute would end and you, um, and you, you would make an agreement before a higher power, say before God, promising that you would do what you say you're going to do to to end this dispute. The understanding being that if you didn't do what you promised you would do, uh, God, as your judge, would hold you to account for that. And these oaths often involved animals being sacrificed and the oath involving you saying that if you didn't uphold your end of the agreement, uh, may you end up like those dead animals. That you needed to swear by a greater power as your witness and judge to be held accountable to if you didn't uphold your end of the deal. Now, now God is, is the greatest power. And he shouldn't have to swear an oath that he'll do anything. He should just be able to do it. Like he's, he's the one in control. is actually the one who makes the rules. But he makes an oath anyway. 
And because there's no one greater than God, he swears by himself an oath confirming that he will do what he has promised. There's a promise and an oath from God. Now, why was this so significant? Why would this help Abraham and Sarah to wait patiently for the promises of God to come true? I mean, even after Isaac was born, there were still the promises of many descendants, and he never actually got to see that. There was a promise of a saviour in Jesus, his descendant who would bless the world that he never got to see. Well, in verses 17 to 18, we read of two unchangeable things. Point two in your outline, two unchangeable things. We keep reading in verse 17 to 18, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of this hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Here we see two things in view. We read of two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. See That, that word impossible, it's there to leave the readers of this letter to leave us with ironclad certainty that what God has promised, he will do. Because God doesn't lie. He can't lie. A constant thing that occurs again and again throughout Scripture is that God doesn't lie. In Numbers 23, verse 19, we read this, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? In 1 Samuel, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 29, we read, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. In the New Testament, in Titus, chapter 1, verse 2, the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. God does not, cannot, will not, lie what he says will happen will happen if god promises that something will occur it it will occur he's not a human being if a human being made these promises that'd be there'd be no certainty but he is god the greatest power there is the perfect holy unchanging god who has been the same since before the creation of the world If he were to lie, if he were to go against something he has said, he just wouldn't be God. So when he makes an oath, you can be double sure that he's going to keep his word. You have ironclad certainty that he will do what he has said he will do. And there are two oaths that we have read about in Hebrews. One of those oaths is to Abraham. And you can read the full story of this oath in Genesis from uh, in chapter 22 or the full account of Abraham from chapter 12. Um, but when you get to Genesis 22, we read the first oath that God swears in the whole entire Bible. And it's this. It should be on the screen. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. This is the oath that God swears to Abraham, one of the unchanging truths 
in which it is impossible for God to lie. The nations will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. And what's the second oath that we've read in Hebrews? Well, we read it already in Hebrews chapter 5, but it's fleshed out a bit more in chapter 7 and comes from Psalm 110. And the oath is about that offspring who would bless the nations. In Hebrews 7 verse 21 we read, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. forever. Two oaths, two unchanging truths. One oath promising blessing to the world. Another oath revealing how that blessing is true in Christ. Another oath confirming the first and proving its fulfilment. In Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, the one through whom the whole world is blessed, who lives forever as our high priest in heaven. The only one who can and has brought us back to relationship with God if we have turned to him in repentance of sin and faith. The only one who is even now in heaven, verse 20, acting on our behalf before God, our forerunner. That means the one who has gone before us, marking out the trail to be able to enter into the very presence of God himself without fear of being destroyed, but with assurance, with security as his children. Verse 19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, verse 20, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we spoke about Melchizedek a couple of weeks ago, and the chapter that really fleshes out who he is is chapter 7. Uh, but, but this is the hope that's being talked about. It's the promise of God. The promise of God. A promise that is found to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. A promise that will finally be fulfilled in its entirety when Jesus returns to take us home to our real home, to our eternal home. See, these are the promises that offer ultimate security, promises that are a firm foundation to build your life on. That's point three, firm foundation. Uh, Much of our lives are built around the idea that we can have security in certain things. In one sense, it's a really good thing, isn't it, to be able to have the security uh, of, of work or the security of health or life or car insurance or security of relationships with those who love you, uh, the security of, of, of living in a house with four walls with a roof over your head. They're good things. But think, think about what the Christians in the early church were going through that this letter was written to. I mean, they were, they were persecuted for following Jesus. They were persecuted for believing in the promises of God that are fulfilled in Christ. Rarely would anyone be persecuted for having a job or health insurance or a house. They're really tangible things that we can see and experience in the now. Rarely would someone be persecuted for being comfortable. Actually, someone would be applauded for having those things. And the marker for success in our society has a lot to do with, with having all of those things. Much of the way our lives revolve are around those things. And so it can be tempting to think that life is all about those things, especially when the cultural current we live in pulls us in that direction. But Hebrews has already told us that that all of this stuff, it's all perishing. All of those things aren't eternal. All of them are, are wrapped up 
in the world that God created and are not eternal. Remember, the world is a created thing. God alone is eternal. And one of the big lies, I think, uh, of our time is that eternity isn't actually a thing. Uh, We live, we die, that's it. Everything's about this life right now. The Bible doesn't talk like that, though. Hebrews doesn't talk like that. Remember Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. But the promise of God in Christ is that our eternity is secure because Jesus has died on the cross for sin. For the thing, the thing separating us from God, his sacrifice has been accepted by God as payment for our sin. But only if you turn away from sin to Jesus in repentance and faith in him. The temptation is to look at the tangible things in front of us in the world and to think that if we surround ourselves well enough with those things, everything will be okay. I just need the house, I just need the money, I just need the acceptance in society, those things can bring me in and everything's going to be okay. Well, The perspective of the Bible is that if this is the foundation that we seek to build our lives on now, this is a false security. This is a temporary and insecure foundation. These are idols that we trust in instead of the living, unchanging, eternal God that made us. And the house will come down falling around us. When we lived in that house in Clemsig, the cracks appeared. Covered them over with plaster to try to hide them, but they're still there. We shoved plastic bags into the cracks so that we wouldn't feel the effects. But they were still there. If we try to build our lives on the foundation of money or career or family or power, thinking that these things offer security, offer real life and real satisfaction... Well, we need to see the cracks in that. We need to see that the foundation isn't secure. Because what do those things offer, really? Temporary security. It is really an illusion of security. money, Money can't buy time. It can't solve sickness. Career can't offer satisfaction that lasts. Your house and all the stuff you surround yourself with isn't going to go with you when you die. Or your children, when they grow old, either. Don't just plaster over the cracks. But hear the eternal promise of the eternal God in Christ. That you can have eternal security. But it isn't in the things of this world. It's in the one who has died for you and risen again. Who has made it possible you to come into your eternal home that will never fall. The call of the author of Hebrews is to, to be patient, is to imitate the faith and patience of those who have gone before, like Abraham. We get to read about a lot more of these people in Hebrews chapter 11. But patience isn't really something we're good at as a society, and I'm really terrible at it. We want things now, and we can generally get things now. So when God says wait, we don't want to do it. We push back against that. It's so much easier to turn to things we think can offer us what God has said is waiting for us in eternity. We want it it all now. And so instead of trusting in the promises of God and waiting patiently for him to do what we know he's going to do, 
We turn to the things in the world around us and start trusting in those things to do what only God can. It's because patience is hard. It's why the author points us again and again to the promise of God in Christ. That Christ is better than anything this world can offer you, past, present or future. He's gone before you to make the way possible to be with God for eternity. To have a home for eternity. To have security for eternity. And you're not going to find those things in this world, only in Christ. God's promises are a firm foundation that will not be moved. So be patient. Keep persevering. As we look to God's promises in Christ, as as we seek to build our lives on these promises, how can we be patient? What, What does that look like? Well, I think, firstly, it looks like looking where the author of Hebrews keeps telling us to look, like always, constantly, is that the promise of God, or the promises of God in the Bible, they're all over the place, and, and they're incredible. And what's amazing is that as we read through the Bible, we see again and again God keeping the promises that he makes to people. Every time God promises that he'll do something, he does it. So the more we look at the promise-keeping God, the more we can trust that the promises we have to look forward to in eternity are going to be kept. And secondly, it looks like actually talking about the promises of God in Christ with each other. That's what we want to do every Sunday as we gather together as a church. And it looks like admitting that it's hard to each other, admitting that we get following him wrong, and it looks like pointing each other back to the promises of God in Christ and why it is worth it to follow him, why it is worth it to trust in the promise-keeping God. Talk with each other about how it encourages you How it challenges you to address those idols in your life that are calling to you to find security to them instead of in Jesus. Talk about the promises of God in Christ with each other. I know for me, when I do that, it it stops those promises from being distant and and far-off things to being present and real as my attention is turned to a God that is real, that is living, that makes and keeps promises. I think thirdly and, and finally... It means prayer. If Jesus has gone before us into the presence of God as our great high priest, it actually means we can talk anytime, anywhere to God. We can ask him to help us have our eyes on his promises. We can ask him to align our lives with his promises. We can say sorry to him when we get it wrong and he hears and forgives us. We can thank him for his promises in Christ. We can thank him when we see his goodness In our lives, we can talk to him and bring our concerns and worries and our insecurities to him. We can do it anytime and anywhere. And we can know always with assurance that God will never go back on his word. We can know always that our assurance exists completely outside of our abilities and what we bring to the table and what this world offers. And it's all to do with the God that's promised us eternal life in his son's name. He is the one who we flee to with hope from the brokenness of the world, from the distractions of the world. He is the one who has given us this great assurance, this great encouragement to keep going with our eyes fixed on Christ. So let me lead us in thanking him for that now and asking that it help us to do that. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that you're a God who loves us. You're a God who has revealed yourself to us in your Son. You're a God who actually wants us with you. 
Thank you that you chose to love us when we turned our backs on you. You sent your son into this world to call back rebellious people, to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be reconciled to you. Thank you for the great hope and the great assurance that we have in what your son has done for us on the cross. We pray that we would have our eyes fixed on him always, that we would always keep coming back to the promises you've made to us in him, knowing that you're a God who does keep your promises, that you're a God who we can trust in, who will never let us down, knowing that the things of this world do not offer a firm foundation, only your promises in Christ. We pray that you'd help us to be a church that seeks to point each other towards these promises again and again and again, towards your Son who we desperately need every day of our lives, Lord. We thank you for the great hope, for the great encouragement that we can have in who Jesus is, what is done for us, Lord. Amen.